0: the suggested Al-Anon welcome says, in part, it is possible to find contentment and even happiness whether the alcoholic is drinking or not. How can this happen? Welcome to episode 285 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Maureen, Alban, Fred, May, and Molly. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Maureen, Alban, Fred, May, and Molly for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. I'm going to start with a reading. This is from Courage to Change, which is one of our daily readers. This is August 1st. I came to Al-Anon to discover how to get a loved one to stop drinking, hoping that my life would then return to normal. In Al-Anon, I came to understand that I did not cause alcoholism. I can't control it, and I can't cure it but I can apply the 12 steps to my own life so that I can find sanity and contentment whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. This is why, in Al-Anon, the focus must be on me. Recently, I was talking with an Al-Anon friend whose loved one had relapsed. My friend wondered if it was possible to have a life that wasn't full of anger and sadness, even though there was active drinking in their home again. I tried to speak from my own experience because I had been in that place for a couple of years. I did find contentment and even happiness while my loved one was still drinking. How did I do that? I have to go back a little. In my first year in Elanon, my wife managed eight months of continuous sobriety before relapsing. So I was at least able to get started in the program before I was challenged to really apply the tools and principles that I had been learning. It would be another two and a half years before she hit her bottom and found long-term sobriety, one day at a time, of course. Before I came to Al-Anon, I was full of anger, despair, resentment, fear, frustration, rage, and probably other emotions that I couldn't have named at the time. I felt that I was a failure, and I didn't understand why she couldn't just drink normally. Was that too much to ask? And, of course, it seemed it was my job to make that happen to somehow convince her that she needed to drink normally, except that nothing I tried worked, which of course fed the anger, despair, resentment, fear, frustration, and rage. My friend talked about stuffing feelings, and I reflected that I think a lot of my rage came from stuffed feelings. And I think it didn't really matter what feelings they were, That I was stuffing down, that I wasn't letting out, that I wasn't sharing with anybody, that I was just trying to live through. I think once they got down in there and they got all mixed up in my psyche, then it came out as rage. I've noticed even now when I find myself under some sort of stress that I'm much more likely to react in anger than is my normal self now but back then i didn't have any way to to relieve that pressure like a pressure cooker without a relief valve and the heat was on and the pressure just built up and up and up and every now and then it would burst out at some some small thing usually usually wasn't a big thing it was it just was the trigger the pressure was ready to go and 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 the, some small event triggered it and boom i blew up and of course afterwards i apologized Not that that did a whole lot of good. So there I was, certainly not content or happy. Yeah, she relapsed after about eight months sober, eight months of the pink cloud, eight months of, hey, the miracle happened, and isn't this program wonderful, and isn't AA wonderful, and everything's going to be fine. And she relapsed. And it took me a while to figure that out. She was hiding it, of course. She was ashamed of having relapsed. I was in denial that that could even be happening. But one day it became obvious. I was not happy. Uh, I probably was, I'm sure I was angry. I've told this story before. I told her she had to go back to treatment for a month. So she did. And at the end of that month, she came home. It was an inpatient program. She came home and she drank that night. Now, that could have set me up. For a total relapse of my own, I could have gone right back to that place of anger and fear and everything. And yeah, there was fear. Yeah, there was sadness. Yeah, there was some anger. But I also had almost a year of Al-Anon under my belt. And when I came into the program, I had started working the steps pretty quickly. I'm trying to remember exactly. I came in April, and I think maybe sometime in June or maybe July with some other people from the program formed a, a st- step study group, which we called AWAL for A Way of Life, A Way of Living. And we committed to each other to work through the 12 steps, meeting once a week, answering questions out of the book Paths to Recovery. So I had maybe eight or nine months of that in me at the time of the relapse. I worked through step four by then. I had looked at myself, and seen things that I liked and saw things that I didn't so much like. I had admitted my powerlessness in step one. I had come to believe that there was some higher power that could help restore me to sanity, whether that was just the Al-Anon program itself or whether there was something else bigger than that that I couldn't see, touch, or feel. And in step three, made a decision to try to turn my will and my life over to the care of of that higher power. And I realize now, and I've said this before, I know, that in sticking with the Al-Anon program, in working the Al-Anon program as hard as I could, I really had already made that decision, that there was something bigger than me that could restore me to sanity, and that I would let it by working the program. So there I was. I had the support of a group of friends. I had meetings. I had literature I had the transformation that I was starting to go through and working the steps in letting go of some of my self reliance, asking for help from a power greater than myself, whatever that might be. And that made a difference. I did fall back some in my emotional reaction and in my actions, but I think looking back, I recovered pretty quickly and got back to where I had been. Sure, it wasn't all pink cloudy, it wasn't all wonderful. But I was okay. You know? So during the next two and a half years after her relapse, there were some short periods of sobriety. There were some short periods of not drinking. But I was, as I said, in a very different place emotionally and spiritually than I had been before I came to the program. I was not happy about the drinking. I was frustrated that she didn't seem to be able to stay sober. I was fearful that she might Never be able to stay, to, to stay sober. And there were times when I was angry. I remember we took a trip to California around my 50th birthday, visiting my brother, going to Disneyland, all that good stuff, with the kids, staying in a hotel near the beach so we could go swim, body surf, play in the sand. Those things that you go to California to do, right? Southern California. And she decided she wasn't going to drink for the week. Which actually annoyed me some, because I do drink on occasion. And one of the things that I like to do when I travel is to visit microbreweries and brew pubs. And because she wasn't drinking, I felt I couldn't do that. So I was a little annoyed about that. But it was good that she wasn't drinking. Trade-offs. Always trade-offs. We got to the airport to fly home after a week in California for not drinking for a week. And she said, I can't not drink on the plane. It's my flying bar. It was a wet place for her. I said, oh, whatever you need to do. Well, inside I was fuming. But I think I didn't let that show. I accepted that it was what it was. And that was actually, I think, about a month before. She did wake up one morning and say, I don't want to drink today. I don't want to drink tomorrow. Will you help me get rid of the alcohol in the house? But I'm getting ahead of myself because there were those two and a half years and I wasn't carrying, I wasn't holding on to these feelings, frustration and anger. And the difference, what was the difference? During those months when she was reaching her bottom and recently I heard her tell a friend that she was a low bottom alcoholic. She felt she was a low bottom alcoholic and I... Those words kind of surprised me 13 years later. I hadn't ever heard her say that to my knowledge. I hadn't asked either. I figured since we still had a house, I still had a job. We still had food on the table. That was not as far down as many of the alcoholic stories that I had heard in speaker talks. And so I didn't really think of it as a low bottom, but I think emotionally for her it was. She was at a point for the last several months where she could sit at home all day and drink if that was what she, quotes, wanted to do. I think if that was what her addiction wanted her to do, her alcoholism wanted her to do. I think that's pretty much what she did. I have to, I, I say it that way because I wasn't really keeping track. You know, I had three plus years of working the Al-Anon program, working it for all I was worth, really at that point. And so I didn't need to keep track. And I think it was healthy for me not to keep track. I think if I had been trying to measure how much she was drinking, how drunk she was, how whatever, I think that just wouldn't have been emotionally healthy for me. So during this time when I guess I felt like, yeah, she had lost a lot. She had lost a lot from the drinking. I, sometimes I thought, wow, wow, is this ever going to end? Is she ever going to get sober? And I only saw, and there's my black and white thinking coming in, right? There seemed like there were two possibilities. One was she would drink herself to death and the other was she would get sober. I guess I didn't want to think about the third possibility, which is she doesn't drink herself to death, but she still keeps on drinking for the rest of her life. That, (laughs) That would have been really hard. That would have been really hard. But I... You know, I was okay. I didn't put my life on hold to try to fix her. I was getting sleep. I was doing things that I liked to do. I was having fun from time to time. I definitely had periods of, as the opening says, contentment and happiness. I also was sad that the person I loved might be drinking herself to death. But that didn't have to be the only thing that was in my life. And I really think that was a huge gift of this program, a gift of finding a higher power, a gift of, well, let's look at the things that I think contributed to being able to live with active drinking and still have times more often than not, I think of contentment and happiness. So not necessarily in any order of importance here, I've listed some things. One was acceptance and compassion, acceptance that alcoholism, is a disease that it affects the mind and the spirit of the person suffering from the disease and one of the symptoms of that disease is an uncontrollable desire to drink the physical component is that the phenomenon of craving that once the alcohol is in the system their body wants more the desire to drink gets the first drink in and the first drink does the rest of it and that's that's the understanding that has been given to me it's a disease. I can't cure it. I can't control it. I can't cure cancer. I can't cure diabetes. And because alcoholism affects not just the body of the alcoholic, but their mind, it actively acts against being treated. I had this mental image that I, that I called up that I think also gave me some compassion for where she was, that she didn't want to be prisoner of the drink. She didn't want to be getting drunk every day. She just didn't know how to stop. She wasn't able to stop. And I had this mental image. She's sitting in the passenger seat of a car and her alcoholism is driving and is driving just madly and crazily. And she's sitting in the passenger seat screaming. I wouldn't want to be there. So to be able to have compassion, to understand It wasn't something she chose. It wasn't something she wanted. How did I find that acceptance and that compassion? For me, part of it was hearing about the disease, hearing about how the disease affects people. But also, and I think the, the biggest part of it for me was going to AA speaker talks, listening to individual alcoholics tell their own story of what it was like, what happened. And what it's like now. And after going to probably over a hundred of those, I really saw that they were all the same story. The arc of the story was the same. The details were completely different, but it couldn't be that all of these people, all of these different people in different walks of life, in different socioeconomic status, different religions, that all of these people chose this way of living. That just, no longer made sense to me. That that alcoholism grabbed all, every single one of those people and pulled them down until they had, as the saying puts it, a moment of clarity that brought them to recovery and sobriety. So if you don't understand why your loved one is drinking, why your loved one can't stop, I recommend going to some open AA meetings, going to some speaker talks, finding them on the internet, and maybe it will help you to find some understanding. Because, you know, our fifth tradition says that we give understanding and encouragement to the alcoholic. It is something that al gives us, encourages us to do. And I couldn't do that until I heard her story from a whole bunch of strangers. So acceptance and compassion was a big part of it. Acceptance that what was happening is what was happening, was what was happening. That it was a disease that I didn't have the ability to treat. And compassion for the pain that she was in. big part of not blaming, a big part of being able to let go of this need that I felt to, to fix it. I could let go of that. Because it was something I couldn't do. And I came to understand that and know that. The next principle of the program, the next tool on my list here is detachment. And in particular, detaching with love. Now this concept of detachment is huge. And is worth a whole episode on its own. And we've done two episodes about detachment. An early one, episode 12, which I think was titled Detachment. And a later one, episode 188, which is titled Detachment with Love. I was at a meeting recently, and a member was saying, I don't understand detachment. I don't understand if my child had cancer, I could love them and hold them and support them and help them get through it. But I can't do that for my child who's an alcoholic. I thought, you don't really understand detachment if you think that it means you have to separate yourself from your loved one. That is not detachment. That is distancing. That is putting up a wall. And maybe that's all you can do emotionally. Detachment with love is not an easy concept. Go listen to episode 188, really. But what what it means to me, briefly, I cannot tie my happiness to someone else's behavior. Okay, so detaching my emotions from what they're doing. To say, I can't be happy unless this person is doing what I want is not going to make me happy. Whether the person's an alcoholic or just another person, you know. So I cannot tie my happiness to someone else's behavior, but I can love them, even when they're not behaving the way I want them to. Even when they're behaving in ways that I really don't like, that I hate. I can still love them. There's the expression, love the sinner and hate the sin. And to me... That's what detachment with love is about. If I can't get past hating the behavior, I can separate that from the person who I love. And I learned really two forms of detachment or two different ways of detaching. The one that I've talked about is detaching my loved one's self from their actions in my, in my understanding, in my psyche. And then the sort of the flip side of that is detaching myself from them. I believe that when I came into al I did not know where the boundary between me and you was. I tried to take ownership of your stuff and my stuff. I thought if you were not happy, it was my job to make you happy because I couldn't be happy if you weren't happy because we were attached. And I learned in this program that I have to stay inside my hula hoop. I have to stay inside the the space that's right around me physically and emotionally and not try to be part of you and not to believe that I can change you, control you. Also, sort of in this category is not nagging. It's not exactly a slogan, I guess, but I've heard it said, say it once or in a more slogany shape, be honest, be brief, be gone. So if I have something to say to my loved one, if I have something to say to a coworker that is in the nature of what might charitably be called advice, I can say it once. If I say it more than once, I'm nagging. And nagging only makes me frustrated and the other person unhappy. For me, that's part of detaching with love also. Oh, here's a big one. Taking care of myself. Because I felt that it was my job to fix my loved ones, to make everything right for them, I neglected myself. And I learned in this program that I really need to take care of myself first. I need to take care of my physical health but maybe more importantly than that, and particularly if I'm living with active drinking, I need to take care of my emotional and spiritual health. So for me, that included a lot of things. It included doing nice things for myself, giving myself permission to enjoy life. If I felt that I couldn't go out and have fun because my loved one was miserable, again, doesn't help either of us. Because me staying home, miserable, is not going to make her feel better. It's not going to make me feel better to make both of us feel worse. Doing nice things for myself. For me, that meant things like going out to maybe a coffee shop and listening to a musician. There were lots of, lots of those opportunities to go hear some music for free. I didn't have to spend a lot of money. I didn't have to spend a lot of time, but I could, I could treat myself something I like to do. Another part of taking care of myself was working the steps. I think I said in a recent episode, when I came to Elanon. I didn't know how I could continue to live with active drinking and I didn't want to leave and I didn't know what an an alternative might be besides the, one of those two. Because I couldn't envision what the actual answer was for me. That answer was to work this program, to work the steps, to find a higher power to look at myself to ask my higher power to start removing shortcomings to make amends for the things that the wrongs that I had done over the years, particularly when I was in that anger and rage place and to continue to take care of myself in steps, 10, 11, and 12, and to start carrying the message to practice these principles in all my affairs that it changed me. It changed the way I live. So working the steps, continuing to work the program was part of taking care of my emotional and spiritual health in particular. I went back to church after being gone for almost 30 years and found that there was something there that I didn't know I had been missing. I found connections there. I found new joy and I found new passions. I started to wake up, you know, I started to to become me again, rather than this shadow of a self that was all consumed by trying to fix this alcoholism problem. I learned to live one day at a time, to not live in the wreckage of the future or the horror of the past, but to live in the day, to have gratitude for the good things as they came. An attitude of gratitude is, is huge. And when I was talking with my al friend, I was reminded that attitude is, is huge here and, and finding things to be grateful for is really a, a big thing. It helps us, it supports us, it changes the way we live in the world. I was listening to a podcast recently, and I don't remember who it was. But I remember him saying, when I try to shut down my mind and not think of anything, and I guess he was talking about sort of traditional meditation, when I do that, what comes in is all the bad stuff, All the stuff that I don't want to dwell on, it comes in. Instead, he talked about being in the world. I think being in nature, say. Being outside or being open to what's happening around and really immersing himself in the moment. And being grateful for what was there because generally it is good when, when you're doing something that you choose to do and really being there then he's not thinking about the bad stuff. He's not thinking about the stuff that brings him down, and it actually brings him up. And I thought, wow, that's some wisdom there. That's some wisdom there, because, yeah, if, if I'm, you know, when's the time when I'm trying to shut off my brain is when I'm trying to go to sleep, right? And that is the time when all the stuff that went wrong today, all the stuff that might go wrong tomorrow comes crowding in. And if I can take a simple tool like a gratitude list or a prayer and replace that emptiness with one of those, replace the emptiness with gratitudes, then it's a lot easier to get to sleep. And I sleep better. I really do. I don't always remember to do it. And that's a little weird, but almost 16 years into the program, 16 years this month, still forget to do these things. Progress, not perfection, right? And I think the final thing that I'm going to list here as the legs that I was standing on that really brought me to being able to have happiness and contentment in the face of active drinking in my life, in my household, was to surround myself with support. And again, the friend I was talking to was saying, I said, you could call people, you know. You called me, (laughs) right? But they said, well... I feel like it's one thing to call up and say, hey, I have this, like, problem, this issue that I'm struggling with. And it's a totally different thing to call up and say, I'm just feeling like shit because my loved one is drinking. And I'm sad and I'm pissed off and I'm afraid it's never going to stop. And I said, that's exactly when you should call. That's, that's exactly the kind of call you can make. I did that. I did that. And it's not I'm not calling to expect the person on the other end of the line to fix anything. I'm not expecting them to give me advice. I just want somebody to listen. Because my experience from both ends is pain shared is pain reduced. A couple of stories here, I think. A few years ago, maybe ten years ago, I don't know. I was driving a I was taking a long trip and I stopped for dinner. And just as I, I think it was just as I pulled into the parking lot or just as I was walking into the restaurant, an Alan friend called. And I might have said, hey, can I call you back in a few minutes? I need to like get seated and, and all this stuff. I sat down, I ordered a salad so it didn't matter if it got cold. And we talked, I think, for 45 minutes about the things that were going on in my friend's life, the things that were going on with their loved one, that was bothering them. And I think I said this to my friend. I said, look, you know, you can give me your pain because I don't have to own it. It's really easy for me to give it away. It's really easy for me to let go of it. And if it helps you to give it away, to let go of it, then I'm here for you. And at the end of the call, I felt good because I'd been able to sort of talk a little program for the evening there, you know, and I had a, I had a personal connection instead of just sitting in a restaurant full of strangers and I ate my dinner and I got back on the road. It helped me. I hope it helped my friend. I think it did. I think it did. The other story, more recently, my kid was going to grad school and had decided that to save money, they were going to sleep in a tent somewhere in the woods, we'll say in the woods, that's sort of generic. And then they wouldn't have to pay for an apartment and they'd save a lot of money that way. Now, they didn't have a plan really for where they were going to sleep. They didn't have a friend who was like, oh yeah, you can like, we've got a lot of land, you can sleep in our yard or in our our woods or whatever. No, no, they were going to go to Connecticut. They were going to find some place where they could set up their little tent and they were going to live there. And I did the say it once thing. I said, wow, I'm not in favor of this plan or something like that. And I probably asked them questions about practicalities. I really don't remember now. And we had plenty of warning. They spent the summer sleeping out in the yard to sort of get used to the idea and figure out things about some practicalities, I guess. So I drove them to grad school and I literally dropped them at the curb with their bicycle and their backpack asked, do you know you're going to sleep tonight? And I said, no. I said, goodbye, I love you. And I drove away. Talk about things that aren't easy to do. Boy. On the drive back home, which was about a 15-hour drive, I did stop in the middle. I had a CD of Radical Acceptance, I think was the title of the CD, that a friend had given me. And that occupied me for a couple of hours, maybe. And I had friends on the phone. I had Long conversations with friends where I wasn't asking them to fix anything. I wasn't asking them to give me advice. I just needed to talk. I just needed a human connection from somebody who could give me that special kind of love that we have in the program for each other by listening. So surrounding myself with support. So I talked about friends. I talked about phone calls, going to meetings. When my wife relapsed the first time after I'd been in the program, I upped my meetings. I had been going to maybe three, I think I upped it to five plus the open talk, the AA open talk. And I probably would have gone to six, except there was one evening when there wasn't a conveniently available meeting. There was a meeting that night, but I had a bad experience at it, which I've talked about before, and decided not to go back there. And the literature. Reading the literature Sometimes a lifesaver at three in the morning when I really can't call somebody, but I can't get to sleep. I could pick up the book, how Al-Anon works, which I think I bought at my second meeting. I could open it to the back, maybe read one or two of those stories in the back and feel some relief, feel some hope and get back to sleep or get to sleep for the first time. So support surrounding myself with support, taking care of myself practicing detaching with love and having acceptance and compassion were four of the tools and I think I'm not thinking of any others right now I'm sure there were others but those were big but with the help of those tools the last few months of my wife's drinking weren't the best time of my life but they were also by far not the worst time of my life I made a life that didn't depend on my loved one's sobriety But it also didn't exclude her. And I was able to be there on that day when she woke up in the morning and said, I don't want to drink today, and I don't want to drink tomorrow either. I also know that my happiness was not dependent on that event coming to pass. Although I am immensely grateful that it did happen. After a short break, we'll continue with our Lives in Recovery, where we talk about how recovery works in our daily lives and in our meetings. I think I want to highlight one thing from this week was at my Saturday morning meeting. And because it's the fifth Saturday of the month, March 30th, I sat at the table that has decided to study the concepts whenever we have a fifth Saturday. And we've been doing it for, I guess, a couple of years. We're up to concept eight. Concept eight is one of those ones that when you just read the concept, you say, huh, what it says: The board of trustees delegates full authority for routine management of the Allenon headquarters to its executive committees. Um, okay, uh, I guess so. What does that have to do with me? Well, I want to read a couple of sentences from the book "Paths to Recovery" on page two hundred and ninety-six. At the in the discussion of concept eight after it gets through talking about committees and the trustees and so on and so forth. It says with faith in our policies, we extend that faith to each other and find that we do not have to attend to every detail personally, whether at home at work or in our al business meetings, we learn to trust others. None of us have to do it all. Each of our skills complement those of others this makes it possible to keep Al-Anon consistently available. And in another part of the reading, it talks about how we need both leaders who have vision of where we're going and managers who actually make it happen and they don't have to be the same person, which is sort of what that, those last few sentences said as well. And when we read that, I thought, well, this is what I shared on. I obviously am at the right place. This is something that I need to hear today or this week or this month. I've talked a lot about big project at work, a lot of pressure, deadline, blah, blah, blah. Well, we're about a week from finishing. Honest to God, we're about a week from finishing. It's taken us just a little over a year to do a a, a huge amount of work, really, for the team. We're feeling great about that, but we're also now moving into a new realm of work, that needs vision to plan it out, to say, this is the direction we're going in. It needs people to help figure out the details of how we're going to do that. It needs people to do the work. And I could feel like all those people are me, which is both insane in that I can't do it all, but also extremely egotistical to think that I can. I I can do all those things. I just can't do the amount of work that we have to do. And furthermore, I know that I don't have all the good ideas and I don't have all the skills to build the software. I have a team of people that I work with. I am the person on the team who has the most experience with the business but I'm not the only smart person on the team. I'm not the only person on the team who has good ideas. And this concept says to me, you can ask for help. You should ask for help. And I think in in this uh, upcoming work, I have to sit back a little bit from wanting to get my hands in and do everything because because of my experience, because of my time with the company. I'm going to be the primary person setting the vision. And that's my job. And I really enjoy getting in there and doing the detail work. But that's not my job right now. And the, and this concept tells me that's not your job. You know, My job is to be the board of trustees, having the vision, setting the policy so that the managers and the staff, to put it in the terms of, of, of the Al-Anon organization, can do the work. And it doesn't mean I won't be in there doing some little bit of this and that and the other thing, but that's not my primary job. If I tried to make that my my primary job, I wouldn't be giving my full self, my full abilities to the task. So yeah, a man walks into an Al-Anon meeting and hears exactly what he needs to hear, even though he didn't know he had the question. So what happened to me on Saturday? Well, as I said last week, I don't have a plan for next week. Uh, I do I do want to reach out to some of you, at least one of you, who offered to co-host, and we'll see what we do. We do welcome your thoughts, though. We welcome your voice in our conversation here, your experience, strength, and hope. You can call and leave a share about how recovery works in your life. I have a a couple people who do that on a semi-regular basis. I love that. You can call with a question. You can call with your thoughts about finding contentment and even happiness, whether the alcoholic is still drinking or not. What's your experience there? Do you have experience there? Are you struggling with that right now? You can call and leave us a voicemail. Love to hear your voice. 734-707-8795. You could pause the podcast and call right now if you're inspired. 734 707 Eight seven nine five. We do have a voicemail button on the website where you can join the conversation from your computer. And one of the beauties of that is that basically it re, it'll record you. And then if you don't like what you said, you don't have to send it. If you want to re-record it, you can just hit the rerecord button. That's both a plus and a minus in my experience, but it is there. You get 90 seconds at a time with that when you get three minutes on the voicemail, if you call the phone number. And if you really don't want to use your voice, you can send us email, of course. Feedback at The dot show. We would love to hear from you. Our website which is show, has all the information about the show. I put up notes for each episode links to the music that we talk about in most episodes, although I don't have any in this one. Links to the readings, the books that we read from etc. And a contact page that has a whole bunch of information about how to contribute your voice to the which is at therecovery.show contact. Take another short break before we look at your feedback. Joe wrote to say thank you. Hello, all at The Recovery Show. I wanted to send you an email to let you know that I love your show. I'm in a 12-step program, ACA to be exact, and I was floundering a bit for support in the beginning of my emotional recovery. I found your show, and I have been more and more convinced that it was brought to me by my higher power. Very regularly, one of your episodes will nail a topic I've been struggling with. Keep up the good work, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Kim writes, Hey, Spencer. Thanks so much for your podcast. I started listening about six months ago. I have done two step studies, actually in one right now, and have been searching through the podcast for the step I'm on and listening to those podcasts during the week. I find it really helps me to get immersed in the step as well as great insights. About 35 years ago, I went to Al-Anon for several years with my mother-in-law as my qualifier. Then life took over and I was busy raising my three children. About two years ago, my 24-year-old son developed some psychosis from drug use and was hospitalized for about a month. My husband and I attended the family sessions, and on the last one, the group facilitator suggested that we attend Al-Anon. I thought, oh, I did that. I get it. I understand all of it. Don't need that. Then this past summer, my adult daughter came back home while her husband was unavailable and was using alcohol to check out when she wasn't working the part-time job she had. I realized that I had a lot of unfinished business from the past. Read, I blew a gasket, and back to al I went. I just thank God for al I've had huge insights to where we didn't have boundaries with our son and were really enabling him, even though I didn't think we were at the time. My son got a job, moved in with some friends, and was paying all his bills, and then relapsed. Yesterday, my husband and I had to admit him again to the mental hospital for psychosis due to marijuana use. It's a real thing. It's beyond recreational use. It's morning, noon, and night. Super sad. I have to remind myself that he has a higher power, and it's his life now. Your podcast helped me a lot, and I'm really grateful. Thanks, Kim S. from Kentucky. Thank you for sharing your experience, Kim. I just realized as I was reading this, like, you know, you're in the place I was. I mean, he's not living with you, but you are living with you know the consequences of, of his disease and oh, hopefully i gave you something that you can use aaron sent uh, a photo from pinterest eric had wondered in last week's episode about acronyms and alliterations about an acronym for stop because we had pause and halt and you know so aaron's had found this on pinterest and she says she sent it for eric it says the stop method for when you're feeling low and i won't read the whole thing but s is for stop Physically, literally, stop moving. T, take a breath or many. Inhale for five seconds, pause at the top of your breath, then exhale for seven seconds. Focus on breathing. O, observe. Pay attention to how you feel. Observe your heart rate. What emotions are you feeling? P, proceed with purpose. What is it that you need right now? Rest, food, What is realistically manageable right now? Those are some of the things that it says. I will post a link to the Pinterest entry of the stop method. Stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. Cool. Thanks, Aaron. Kate wrote in about episode 47, which was titled Changes. Hi, Spencer. I was recently directed to your podcast by a program friend. They thought it would help support me while going through a major life change I am not yet at peace with. I'm working my way through the episodes from the beginning and just listen to your changes episode. Thank you for being honest while you processed a real life change. Grief, fear, and shock make me want to bolt from or fight against a change. Learning to trust my higher power through the change and my coinciding feelings is major for me. I appreciate your example of staying open and working the steps through the moment best Kate. I wrote back to Kate. She's only at episode 47. It's going to be a while before she hears this. And I said, that was a really hard episode for me to record, but it was one that I had to do. I just had to. Matthew left us a voicemail.
1: Hello, this is Matthew. I want to suggest a topic for a show, but first I want to thank you for such a wonderful show i was texting people today about the different recovery acronyms and sharing them and everybody was really uh getting a lot of help and positive feedback from that they, they really enjoyed getting those for my suggestion on the ethanol show i felt that you know like bob dylan had called me up uh on stage to do a number with them i was just very touched and it really helped me Made my day when i was really having a bad day when i found out you were doing the show uh, my topic a suggestion is on prayer, but and I'm sure you've done something on prayer before, but I want to suggest a show about making prayer more personal or even sharing prayers that we might not have heard of. So, for example, I can't remember it, but you can Google it, the fog light, as in F-O-G, fog light prayer is great for doing service. You can Google that. I don't hear it very often. The people version of the serenity prayer is great, especially for Al-Anon. And that is, uh, you know, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I can't change, courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that one is me. Really great for Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if anybody has experience in writing their own prayers that have been meaningful, uh, at the end of last year, you know, I ended another toxic, addict-alcoholic relationship. It really was in a bad place. And I have PTSD. I was very traumatized. I I really couldn't put many words together at all in complete sentences. And out of the dark, dark place that I was in in prayer, a prayer just poured right out of me. I wrote it on my phone and it was a personalized third step prayer. And I looked at it and I said, there's no way I wrote that. I'm not able to form even complete sentences. And so it was a way that I started to establish a connection with my higher power, which is much better today. And I feel that that is the way that God talks to me, is through prayer. And sometimes he gives me a beautiful gift. One that I made up one day that I would share is that, you know, God, thank you for your love, care, and protection. Please help me follow your good, orderly direction. And that's just one that popped in my head one morning, and I have to give that to my Higher power is an expression of of maybe our 11th step. So helpful. One last one I wanted to share. Another technique that I've sort of figured out is that there's many passages in the literature that you can convert into prayers. And so one from the AA book says on uh, Into Two Wives on page 108, try not to condemn your alcoholic wife or you can put husband no matter what he, he or she says or does. He, she is just another very sick, unreasonable person. Treat him or her when you can as though they had pneumonia. Whether he, she angers you, remember that he or she is very ill. And I looked at it and I thought, you can make that into a prayer. So I wrote this, God, please remove my desire to condemn my addict, alcoholic spouse, no matter what she says or does. Help me to see that she is just another very sick, unreasonable person. Show me how to treat her as if she had pneumonia. When my spouse angers me, remind me that she is very ill. To thy will, not mine be done. Amen. Thanks again, guys. Take care.
0: Thanks, Matthew. Thanks for those prayers. Jenny wrote, Just wanted to say how awesome the show is. I found it very early in my days in al and it gave me an incredible amount of al wisdom in such a short amount of time. I am so grateful for this program. I can listen to anytime, anywhere. Thanks, Jenny. That's why we're here. So you can listen anytime, anywhere. And I mean that. I don't, it's, I'm not being facetious about that. Kelly called in with a new acronym.
2: Hi, Spencer. This is Kelly from Massachusetts. I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, which I really enjoy um, having such a variety of experience, strength and hope available to me all the time. Thank you for the service that you do to give us this show. I just finished listening to the episode on acronyms and alliterations. Wow, such wonderful information to get. Um, And some things that I hadn't heard before, I'm actually calling to share one um, that I didn't hear, which was a a variation on hope. One of the first meetings that I went into that really got me to stick with the program was a newcomer's meeting, and the gentleman who was chairing was sharing his experience and saying that, In that particular room, he pointed out there was a small wooden sign in the window that said hope. And when he first came in, he clung to that because someone told him that it stood for however other possibilities exist. That just became a real beacon for me, because I didn't know how I was going to find hope. I was very stuck and feeling like but this is the situation. This is what I'm living with. This is what I'm going through. And how can I possibly have hope that this will change? Just constantly being able to pause and think, okay, however other possibilities exist. You know, it, I think, I think it really helped me, um, you know, connect to our first three steps, you know, and, and really start to let things go to my higher power and have that trust because My higher power kept putting out other possibilities. Every time I would get into a blind spot and just go into tunnel vision and think, there's no way out of this, there's nothing that I can do, I would have that hope that other possibilities exist and things improved. So I thought that I would call and share that with you. And thank you again for all that you do.
0: Thank you, Kelly, for sharing that. That's wonderful. However... Other possibilities exist. Yeah, that's, that's a, a really great piece of pocket change. You can take it with you and pull it out when you need it and remind yourself of hope. Adam wrote with a question. He says, I've been listening to your podcast over the last week and purchased a couple books too. I think I'm ready to attend a meeting and I dropped a hint about it to my wife concerning our schedules. Over, she became real upset. What's the best way to explain this to her? I don't want to make the situation worse. And I clarified with him that, yeah, his wife is... The person who's drinking is affecting his life and, and why he wants to go to al So she doesn't necessarily understand what al about. Maybe it's a place where people go to complain about their alcoholics. I know a lot of people maybe feel that way. And I didn't have exactly that problem because... My wife had already done AA a few times. She had admitted she was an alcoholic. She had a problem. She was trying to fix it, trying to find recovery. Her fear that I think was expressed in a question that she asked me more than once, are those Al-Anon people telling you to leave me? And I could truthfully say, no, you weren't. I was not in the place that, that Adam's in where she really doesn't understand what the program's about, what it's for. I guess fear is that it's about her. So I I said, well, I will put the question out to the collective, you. Maybe you would like to share your experience if you've been in that situation where your loved one doesn't want you going to meetings. And what that experience has been for you. Maybe if you, what you said or what you didn't say, any of that might help Adam might help somebody else who's got the same question but didn't write in. So call, write, let us know. Share your experience. That's how we grow in this program. Got a review in iTunes recently from R-WA, or maybe R from Washington. I'm not sure. I found this show one day when I was looking for something to listen to while shoveling snow. A task that often stirs my demons of resentment. Instead, I spent the whole podcast completely engaged without running over the same old tracks in my brain. I've been attending my local Al-Anon meeting for about six months now, and discovering this podcast has really helped me understand recovery in a deeper way. That first Al-Anon meeting was a game changer for me, but I realized I need more than one meeting a week. I now listen almost daily to some segments of this podcast. So grateful. And thank you for that review. Reviews in in iTunes or whatever medium you use to listen to this podcast Help others to make a decision to listen to. So thank you for that. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to the recovery show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Maureen, Alban, Fred, May, and Molly did. And thank you again for your support. Thank you for your support in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, and that's a great way to support the podcast and to support recovery. Simply direct them to therecovery.show. We are here for you. Thank you for listening and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace growing you one day at a time.